Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. We've got a real treat of an episode for you today. We're recording from Burgazada in the Marmara, not far from Istanbul. In our first uh, Ottoman History Podcast retreat, where over the next couple of days we'll be workshopping uh, some of the ins and outs of podcasting. And I should mention this retreat is actually funded by some generous honorariums we've brought in this year from various podcast-related speaking at both uh, Boston College uh, and UC San Diego. We're very grateful. I'm very grateful to them for hosting me this year. And as part of our Ottoman History Podcast uh, workshop retreat, we've also got a special guest here for an interview, because that's what we do best, Joshua M. White. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to have you here to talk about the subject, subject of your new book, Piracy and Law in the Ottoman Mediterranean, which is hot off the press from Stanford University Press. Congratulations, Josh. And this is a really interesting work that brings together social, legal, and diplomatic history of the early modern Ottoman Empire. So joining me for the interview today are two co-hosts. We've got Taylor Moore. Taylor, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. This is Taylor's first time on the podcast, won't be the last. Uh, And a familiar voice, Susanna Ferguson. Hi, everybody. So in this interview, I'll be talking to Josh a little bit about the book project. We'll uh, set up the broad context and that Taylor and then Taylor and Susie are going to join the conversation to go deeper uh, into some of the themes in this uh, new work. So, Josh, let's begin by setting the stage during the 16th and 17th centuries. Who was involved in piracy in the Mediterranean? What are the different shapes that piracy took? And who were the targets of piracy? Piracy in the late 16th and 17th centuries comes really in all shapes and sizes. You have a broad spectrum of professionalization and scale. At the lower end, you have your local pirates, small gangs of men using repurposed fishing boats and frigates to raid effectively their neighbors. And you have people of this sort everywhere from the northern Adriatic coast all the way along through Anatolia and into the Levant. At the top end, you have your long-distance pirates and corsairs. On the one hand, starting from the late 16th century, you have English and Dutch merchants who are really the truest pirates of all. They engage in opportunistic raiding anybody they come across that they're stronger again. Then they'll take their ship, they'll take their booty, and they'll toss the crews into the sea. And then you have the Corsairs, and the Corsairs, strictly speaking, are not pirates. They have received license from a sovereign entity to attack um, an enemy, whether that's a religious enemy or a political enemy or a combination of the two. Um, And these are the Corsairs based out of North Africa, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli on the one hand, and Malta and Livorno on the other. So the Corsairs in particular are targeting by religion as well as subjecthood. Muslims are targeting and capturing Christians selling them as slaves or holding them for ransom. Christians are targeting Muslims. And so religious targeting underpins the entire industry. And in cities like Algiers and Livorno and Malta and Tunis, you have a vast infrastructure designed to hold people um, for ransom and to employ them for work more broadly in the Corso. So in short, though, everybody is at risk. In the Mediterranean, anybody who lives within sight of the sea is at risk of being captured and taken. And within the Ottoman Mediterranean in particular, which runs from the Adriatic all the way around to the borders of Egypt, you have a whole host 
of people, all Ottoman subjects, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, who are attracting corsairs from Malta, from Livorno, and from North Africa, who are attacking and enslaving Ottoman subjects. And this is a little bit different than maybe the Hollywood picture of piracy in that it really involves a wide range of actors. You're mentioning corsairs. These are people who are sanctioned by states. So states are involved in piracy. Merchants are involved in piracy. It's a very heterogeneous uh, space in a way. Right. Uh, the piracy in, in the Mediterranean, maritime violence more broadly in the, maritime, uh, in the Mediterranean, bears very little resemblance to the Hollywood image. Unlike the Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, not a single one of these people would have embraced the label pirate. Um, certainly the Corsairs all considered their profession to be an honorable one, and they're really the only true professionals in this business. Otherwise, most people look for legal ways to position their activity, um, look for legal justifications for it. No, that's really an important point. I guess that's that's really what the book focus on, focuses on, this, the legal dimensions of piracy. So this is a period when law in maritime space is sort of taking shape and expanding. And it's also what you call in your book, the golden age of Mediterranean piracy. And in your story of, of Mediterranean piracy, we have our fair share of, uh, in addition to the actors like pirates and corsairs, um, Ottoman bureaucrats, intellectuals, and legal figures. So could you explain the relationship of the issue of piracy to like Ottoman Islamic law and elaborate on how piracy, in a sense, transformed law in the Ottoman Empire? So when pirates strike, and whether they be pirates or corsairs at the end of the day, officials in any state really need a kind of uniform set of policies to deal with them. When pirates strike, uh, there's often going to be consequences that last for years after an attack. Um, once the pirates are sailed away, you still have to sort out the mess of, well, who owns this stuff now? Who pays for the losses? Uh, when you know who's attacked you uh, and you, you know, ring up the, the people from the other state and say to them, well, who, you have to pay me for this. How do you handle all these things? When your subjects have been enslaved, how do you get them back? When piracy uh, becomes increasingly common towards the end of the 16th century, the Ottomans are in many respects ill-prepared to deal with the problem militarily. But at the same time, they have to have dynamic legal administrative responses to the problem. Um, and that is where our bureaucrats and our jurists come into the picture. Because in many respects, uh, Hanafi Ottoman Islamic law hadn't really dealt with some of these problems before. Great jurists like Abu Sud certainly had dealt with the question of distribution of booty, how to deal with successful war issues. But the question of what happens when your uh, ships are captured, taken away, then recaptured by somebody else and brought back to your own markets, who owns that stuff now? Those kinds of questions hadn't really been well resolved in, in the Ottoman sphere. And so we find then that the Sheikh al-Islam, the Ottoman chief jurists, the Mufti of Istanbul, these people are issuing legal opinions um, that are being requested by merchants, by foreign ambassadors, by Ottoman uh, subjects of all stripes for how to deal with these issues on the one hand. And then, of course, Ottoman judges, Qadis, are responsible for actually hearing these sorts of cases in Ottoman courts. And so we encounter, especially towards around the, the turn of the 17th century, more and more of this sort of uh, thing happening. And I think we're going to talk in greater depth about exactly uh, those questions in just a bit. And we should remind our listeners that, you, you know, you're, you're saying that 
during this early modern period, the Ottoman legal institutions are sort of figuring out piracy. And this is something that's going on in other European empires as well, that this is this, it's a sort of contemporaneous development in multiple uh, maritime empires, including the Ottomans. Absolutely. I mean, and the Ottomans are in dialogue to an extent uh, with the Europeans, and in particular with the Venetians, that um, on the one hand, you have Ottoman Islamic law, Fatifa collections as being one realm where the Ottomans are dealing with the problem of piracy and the problem of how to handle stolen cargo. But in the other arena, it is in, in uh, that of, of foreign relations. Uh, the Ottomans' uh, relations with Venice in particular, uh, in the Adnames, or the capitulations as are perhaps better known, the Ottomans are dealing with piracy with the Venetians from the late 15th century on. And as the nature of maritime violence changes over the course of the 16th century, so too do these treaty texts, so too do the diplomatic responses to the problem. And so this is one big area where law is being theorized and put into practice, and it's responding to real issues. Um, so while the Ottomans don't have their own Grotius or Gentili, um, what the Ottomans end up developing looks pretty similar on the ground mm. to what we're seeing appear in Europe at the same time. Well, that's fascinating. And I mean, another another kind of change that you trace in, in the book that I thought was very interesting uh, coming from my own limited readings on the early modern Mediterranean, there's a new division uh, in the political map of the Mediterranean emerging. So when I read about the early modern Mediterranean, it's often divided into two halves, the northern half, which is Christian Europe, and the southern uh, Muslim sphere, uh, where the Ottoman Empire is the principal actor. So in your book, a little bit different organization emerges in that there's you know, there's quite a bit of entanglement between these two Muslim and Christian spears, as other historians of the Mediterranean have pointed out. Uh, but you also uh, look at sort of North Africa as a distinct domain from the rest. North Africa was under Ottoman uh, dominion in various ways. Um, but you say that in political and legal terms during the 17th century, it emerges as, as somewhat separate. So could you explain how that is? Why, why does North Africa merit consideration as sort of a third center of uh, the Mar uh, of the Mediterranean. Right. Well, I mean, I think in, in the early modern historiography on the Mediterranean, the divide that's more pronounced really is between the East and the West. Mm. And the historiography dealing specifically with ransom and with piracy and corsairing more broadly um, has historically been focused more on the Western Mediterranean, um, even though it does still end up being divided between, of course, the Corsairs active out of North Africa, taking mm -hmm. European Christian captives on the one hand, and to a lesser extent, the activities of the Maltese and, oh, I should say, the Corsairs that are being licensed out of Malta and those that are being licensed out of Livorno mm -hmm. and other uh, domains in Southern Europe. The Eastern Mediterranean has often been left out of this story. If we look even at some of this literature, though, what's, what's kind of fascinating is that when we read about the captives in North Africa, other than sometimes mentioning that, well, North Africa is Ottoman, is the Ottoman state, the Ottoman sultan, Ottoman administrative institutions and legal institutions are completely absent. So you would not know, other than the word Ottoman, that there was any connection with North Africa in the first place. Now, I think that actually goes far, much too far. Um, but it is the case, and it, and it is important to understand how, beginning in the late 16th century, a divide begins to emerge between provinces only very recently won mm -hmm. between Istanbul and North Africa that 
you know, the Ottoman conquest of North Africa begins not with an Ottoman campaign, but with a request from Algiers. It's a paper acquisition. Tripoli and Tunis are one with blood and cannonballs. Uh, But it's 13 years or so after the Spanish are finally expelled from Tunis. Um, So they're expelled in 1574. By 1587, the Ottomans have reorganized how they appoint figures in North Africa. And once we're a couple generations removed from the acolytes of Barbarossa, we see North Africa pretty much following its own path. The connections between North Africa and Islam are important. They're lasting. Uh, I don't want to suggest that they're not part of a broader Ottoman commonwealth. They clearly are. But it's notable that very quickly the corsairs and the regimes that support them and license them come to the conclusion that the sultan's diplomatic arrangements with European powers do not apply to them. And this is the fundamental question, right? Which is, to be a corsair, you must receive license from a sovereign entity. If you don't have that license, you're a pirate. Mm -hmm. If the corsairs of North Africa attack people that the sultan has peace with, and they are not themselves sovereign, then they're pirates. If, however, they have themselves legal personality, is then they can say that they are at war with those European powers. Right. And they're corsairs, and what they're doing is legal, it is right, it is just, and it is jihad. So that's the fundamental issue, and that is what plays out over the early 17th century. It's this, this real big question of where is the line between legal and illegal rating, and who has the right to set it. Right. And so it's exactly in this legal domain that that sort of dis- separation between the Ottoman Empire and North Africa is emerging, and it's around the issue of piracy. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Corsairs, uh, uh, that it's especially uh, taking shape. Piracy is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Precisely. So we won't have a chance to talk about everything that's in the book, but before we delve into some of the details with Taylor and Susie, I want to give you a chance to just give our listeners a, a quick overview of what's in the six chapters, you know, one by one and, and what they can look forward to. The book is divided into three parts, and so after an historical introduction that provides, I think, a lot of the context that's been missing in studies on uh, Mediterranean maritime violence that helps us to understand a bit why the Ottomans are perhaps sometimes absent in fighting piracy, and why piracy really explodes towards the end of the 16th century. Then the first part of the book deals with the Ottoman experience of piracy and and corsaring in the Ottoman Mediterranean. The first chapter looks at the Ottoman victims of Ottoman pirates, really gets into the question of what is a pirate? What words do we have to define it? Why is it so difficult to define piracy and to determine really where the line is between that and legal rating? And what what are the connections between your local pirate and your long-distance corsair? Then the second chapter moves into the question of how do the Ottomans react to and experience Catholic corsairing and, and Christian more piracy more broadly in the Ottoman Mediterranean, which really begin, explodes towards the end of the 16th century as well. By 1600, many of the Aegean islands are effectively o- occupied year-round by Christian pirates. The Ottomans are themselves victims of corsairs who are carrying off Ottoman subjects, and particularly Ottoman state servants to Malta. And so one of the things that that chapter explores is a phenomenon of the, the Qadis, the, the judges, the Ottoman judges of Malta, and their involvement in helping set up and keep running the ransom industry in the Ottoman Mediterranean. The second part of the book then moves into the realm of international law and diplomacy. The third chapter introduces 
the treaty regime of the Ahanames, how it develops between the late 15th and the early 17th centuries and expands from its kind of Phoenician uh, Ottoman origins to encompass and include the English, the French, and the Dutch. Chapter four then looks at how all of that goes wrong, how the rise of North African corsairing in particular challenges the promises of the Ahanames and leads ultimately along with North African attempts to establish treaties directly with Europe, or I should say, probably, European attempts to establish treaties directly with North Africa leads to a divergence between Istanbul and North Africa that is never really mended. Finally, uh, we move into uh, the realm of piracy in Ottoman law, both in, in theoretical terms and in, in the law of the jurists and in their uh, collections of legal opinions, and then how that law is actually applied in Ottoman courts. One of the things we see is that the Ottomans really have a kind of two-part or two-sourced legal system. And so it's ultimately in the courts where we see the realm of the law of the Adnames and secular law meet Ottoman Islamic law. And we see how piracy is actually experienced on the ground in the Ottoman Mediterranean. All right. Well, I'll remind our listeners that we have a bibliography on our website and a link where you can check out Josh White's book. Uh, We're going to go deep into some of the details about that book in just a minute. But first, a short musical break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. We're here with Joshua White talking about his new book, Piracy and Law in the Ottoman Mediterranean, out from Stanford University Press. At this point in the discussion, I'm going to hand it over to my two co-hosts, Taylor Moore and Susanna Ferguson, who are going to be talking further with Josh about this uh, interesting new book. So, Josh, in the book, you work with these fatwas, right? Um, we go into the nitty-gritty kind of, of Islamic legal documents. And can you tell us more of what these documents look like, what they say, and um, how researchers or how you analyze them in your book? Right. Well, so I'm, I'm looking at fatwa collections, so collections of, of fatwas that were issued by individual Sheikhul Islams. Uh, most of these collections were compiled by their chief clerks after their terms in office, and often these chief clerks themselves would become Sheikhul Islams later. So in fact, rather than just looking at individual legal opinions, is we're, we're seeing really the opinions of the, the Ottomans' chief legal hierarchy as a whole. Um, we're seeing institutional opinions being developed. Now, these collections serve a didactic function. In part, they're probably being consulted by law students in law school. The Ottoman fetva is, in its form, rather unique 
in comparison to uh, many other traditions of uh, fatwa writing, insofar as the clerks at the fatwa hane, the, the, the fatwa granting office, would take whatever question they were asked and reformulate it and then kind of distill it to its essence so that it could be answered yes or no. All the details are stripped out of it. All the names, usually all the places, all the dates, all the things that usually make historical sources seem promising are taken out of this thing. So that if you were to encounter a single fatwa, what you'd be looking at is a small square piece of paper with the question and the answer, which is usually no, yes. And then the signature of the Sheikh Islam. So maybe you could read us an example of a fatwa that you are managed to read in your book in a way that doesn't simply lead to a chapter with yes or no as the main text. Happily. So here's an example. Question. While Captain Zaid, and I should say that we have aliases that are always used as Zaid, Amr, Becker, Besher. So while Captain Zaid is cruising towards the Mediterranean with his ship, he encounters the ships of enemy infidels. They seize Zaid's ship. Afterwards, near the island of Cyprus, the ships of the Muslims happen upon the infidel ships and they prevail in the ensuing conflict. They take Zaid's ship from their hands. If, after taking full possession of it, they sell it to Amr, and if Zaid now finds his ship in Amr's possession, after, after providing proof of his prior ownership, can he, according to the Shariat, take it from Amr's possession for free? Answer, yes. And that is the fetva of Zechariah Zada Yahya Effendi. So that dates from between the 1620s and the mid-1640s. And that one is actually unusual insofar as the words Mediterranean and Cyprus appear in there. What, what does that fetva tell us? How, what do we get from that? So the question here really is one about ownership, first and foremost, right? Your ship has been taken. Somebody else captures it again. Who owns it now? Now, in a European court in the same period, just to give you a kind of baseline of, of how others might understand it, the, question, the answer to that question would depend first on, was it taken to a place of security, the ship or the cargo? And then, was that a legal taking? That is, were they licensed corsairs or privateers, or were they pirates? If they were pirates, you get your stuff back. Uh, if they were corsairs and it was taken to a place of security, you don't. Now, in Ottoman Islamic law, the situation is somewhat different. Something still needs to be taken to a place of security, but for change of ownership to have taken place in this particular context, that is to say, for Zaid to have not been able to get his ship back for free, the ship would have had to have been taken to the Dalharb, the abode of war, to a place of security, for example, Malta, and then had it been brought back or captured by the, the ships of Islam he'd be out of luck. He'd have to buy it back. Because the ship, though, was recaptured within the abode of Islam, and the way we know they haven't left the abode of Islam yet is they're still near Cyprus, they haven't gone to a place of security in the abode of war, he gets it back. It makes no difference whether our enemy infidels, and that means people from the abode of war, whether they are corsairs or privateers or pirates, whether they're friends of the Ottomans, like Venetians during a time of peace, or enemies like the Spanish. It makes no difference as far as that's concerned. And so we encounter a lot of fetvas beginning around the turn of the 17th century in the collections that are dealing with these kinds of questions and are providing guidance to judges and to merchants uh, and to foreign diplomats about how these sorts of disputes are going to be resolved. 
You say in the book that um, the kind of adjudication of Ottoman administrative and legal response to maritime raiding really hinged around the questions of religion and subjecthood. And these are terms that you also brought up in the first half of the podcast. I'm wondering if you can just explain a little bit more how those two kind of axes worked um, in the the kind of adjudication of legal responses to maritime raiding. You know, when did it depend on subjecthood? When did it depend on religion? Um, And how does this help us to, to sort of sketch a new picture or a different picture of the Ottoman Mediterranean in the early modern period? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, religion and subject underpins the question of what is and is not legal rating everywhere in the Mediterranean. But in the Ottoman context, you have, on the one hand, the Islamic courts, which are not necessarily going to be terribly concerned, again, with what sorts of enemy infidels we're dealing with, whether they're the Ottomans' friends or enemies, whether they're pirates or corsairs. If enemy infidels take your ship to the abode of war and then it comes back into the abode of Islam again, it's not yours anymore. But if the people who take your ship are Ottoman subjects, there's nowhere they can take it where you can't have it back. So it matters, it matters first and foremost whether or not the raiders are Ottoman subjects. Yes. So in what way then might it matter um, for somebody, either a raider or a victim, to be Christian or Muslim? Well, I mean, there is no circumstance in, when, in which any Ottoman subject can raid, enslave, um, to spoil another Ottoman subject. The only circumstances when you, you encounter something like that is if the Ottoman subjects being raided and enslaved had ceased to be Ottoman subjects. That is to say, if we're talking about uh, Zimmis, Zimmis, Ottoman subjects who have been found to have broken their pact and therefore are now have become enemy infidels. But you note that in practice, um, in some cases, it was much harder for Christian subjects of the empire who had been enslaved to receive the full recourse of the law. Right. Because once you have become uh, enslaved and sold as a slave, you can contest your uh, situation. You can sue your owner for your freedom, but you will need witnesses to prove your free origin. And if your owner is a Muslim, is that means that no non-Muslim can testify against them. That means also, though, if you are from a place where there are no Muslims, Ottoman subject or not, you are going to have a problem. And you note that this is true for many of the islands, I think, in the Aegean, yes. where, of course, many populations were likely to more likely than you know people in the middle of anatolia to be raided by pirates right so for example in 1574 uh some errant ottoman naval irregulars so we could say that they were corsairs when they're behaving but pirates in this instance sack naxos capture probably a few hundred that doesn't tell us precisely how many few hundred christians and jews from the island sail 100 miles east and sell them along the anatolian coast claiming that they were legally enslaved enemy infidels. And the response is is the central government ultimately has to send somebody down. There's a nine-month manhunt while they're trying to find all these people. And because they find out they can't prove in the courts that these people are are Ottoman subjects because there are no Muslims in Naxos, they end up uh, involving a guy from Naxos who's going to come and say, yes, that guy's from Naxos. Yeah, that, that woman's from Naxos. And then the way in which they get around this whole problem of witnesses is to say, well, do the owners have uh, penjic papers? Do they have legal uh, tax papers showing that these are legally imported captives? Of course they don't. And then the government confiscates them and manumits them. But it just shows how disadvantaged a non-Muslim may be in these circumstances. And it brings out some of the complexities of law and governance in, in, you know, not only in the early modern Mediterranean, but in a moment where legal codes themselves or legal responses are also being, you know, kind of built 
um, or, or thought rethought about from scratch, basically. Absolutely. So we've been talking a little bit about who was disenfranchised um, by piracy, who were the victims of piracy were, but who actually benefited from piracy? Were there times in which the Ottoman Empire itself benefited from the flexibility of whether one was a pirate or corsair and when? Um, and when did the state choose to employ pirates for their their own ends? Yes, no, there, there's no question that the Ottoman state benefits from naval entrepreneurs of various uh, various shapes and forms that while in their kind of early stage, local pirates are mostly a nuisance for just about everybody other than the people who are receiving the stolen goods, is these places end up being sort of laboratories for men with naval skill to develop those abilities. And in time, they may graduate to professional service in Algiers and Tunis and Tripoli, and then can be called upon uh, to serve the Ottoman state as naval auxiliaries. Um, they provide cheap defense mostly because the Ottomans don't necessarily have to pay these people. They pay themselves by taking stuff from the enemy. So the, the Ottoman state makes heavy use of Corsairs throughout the 16th century and through much of the 17th century, both homegrown and foreign. And while the benefits of illegal commerce are not distributed evenly, they do result in keeping afloat some otherwise marginalized ports. Yeah, I was about to ask for more on the marginalized ports. But um, after you answer that, I also want to get us outside of the lens of the state because a lot of kind of side stories in your book point to the fact that there are unexpected benefactors as well who aren't necessarily victims. Like you have these royal benefactors who are able to provide religious charity um, and gain a sort of pious currency from that by being able to uh, pay for the freedom of certain captives and, and what that means. So there are ways that people are benefiting, even if it's not in terms of economic currency or black market goods. But if you could start with the ports, maybe. Certainly. Uh, so you have, for example, I'll, I'll mention uh, Avlonia, present-day Vlor in Albania, which is really at this uh, narrow point in the southern Adriatic. It's a choke point. So strategically, it's extremely important. Now, Avlonia is a reasonably prosperous transit port in uh, the later 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, but starting from about 15, the 1590s, Split is established as a viable transit port in the north, and so goods that are coming from across the Balkans can hop the Adriatic to Venice and beyond from Split, and Avlonia is just kind of left out. What Avlonia does have going for it, though, is this strategic location where it's right at the mouth of the Adriatic. That means all shipping coming from Venice um, and going out has to pass by it. Uh, so if you are part of the kind of local defense forces, the Ottoman Coast Guard in the region, that is to say you're a Corsair, and you are paid basically nothing, or if you are the local customs official and no goods are coming through anymore, you realize that you can take advantage of that position and take a tax from all the goods that are passing near and by, and you can sometimes raid and slave both your neighbors, Ottoman subjects and Venetians, and anybody else you may pass through, and uh, make up for that loss. Uh, customs officials can take bribes for looking the other way. They can take a cut for keeping the markets open. The fortress commanders uh, can benefit from taking a share of the booty as well. The 
Local Coast Guard continues to do its work for free under these circumstances. Everybody benefits a little bit. The ports themselves realize that once they have this great moment, well, then when the English show up, we'll welcome them too. There's a, we, have, we receive stolen goods. We don't ask questions. The English will show up. The Dutch will show up. The North Africans will realize, well, they don't ask questions about whether these people are from Venice or Spain or wherever else. We'll, we'll use them too. And a port that has otherwise been left at the outside of development and is no longer a major node on legal trade finds itself revitalized through illegal trade. It's so interesting what you're describing, though, because basically, you know, we might we might think of piracy or, or illegal maritime raiding as a kind of black market, right? That these are goods that are circulating in a way that is not justified, you know, not given permission by the state. But in fact, as Taylor, your question has really pointed out is that, you know, the state is actually depending on this because they're not paying their Coast Guard um, to perform the services. So this is a kind of administrative model that that requires the, exi- the existence of, of piracy or corsairing in some ways. Right. Well, and some of these people are being paid, your local fortress commanders and others. But if their pay was set at, say, you know, X number of Akcha, you know, per week in the 1560s, and 100 years later, it's the same. Uh, and you consider the just incredible inflation of the 1580s, is they're really not making enough to live off of. And you were also dealing in, with an age in which uh, many district governors have had to purchase their positions uh, officially or unofficially, and may not hold them for long. And so there are a lot of incentives for people to look the other way. I mean, we need to kind of disaggregate the state here because there's no reason to assume that the viziers on the imperial council or the sultan himself are pleased with these developments, especially when every benefit going to, to Avlonia is taking money away from customs revenues that might actually accrue to other to their mind, more important people, uh, and is leading to the Venetians constantly knocking on their door. So you make a point in the book, um, and I want to quote you here, or at least paraphrase you correctly, um, which is that we shouldn't be taken in by the temptation to argue that the explosion and piracy in the Mediterranean after 1570 could be evidence of a, of a sort of weakening or decline of Ottoman authority um, in the Western provinces only, right? You, you, you make a point that this is also a form of triage, which is, as Chris mentioned earlier, being undertaken by other uh, you know, maritime imperial powers. And also, I think what your discussion here is highlighting is that this is part of a sort of evolving form of governance and administration, which maybe doesn't fit the kind of territorial model of power that we might associate with state strength or power today, but actually has kind of evolves a a sort of legal realm of power and authority, which offers quite a different picture. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a a necessary distinction between capital D decline and little d decline, uh, because there's no question by that by the end of the 16th century, the Ottoman Navy is a shadow of what it had been a few decades earlier, that Ottoman governance on the Western frontier is weaker than it was. But this is not a permanent moment of decline. This is a moment where, um, for those who may not be familiar with Ottoman history in this period, of course, is probably the most difficult in its history to date, except for perhaps the Civil War in the 15th century, right? Where, where the Ottomans have been at war, say, around 1600. The Ottomans have been at war for 30 years continuously, almost. Uh, they're dealing with the worst bit of inflation in their history, worse inflation than probably any state had encountered up until that point. Uh, It's at this moment fighting wars on two frontiers and dealing with a massive rebellion in Anatolia. So when you find out that 
you know, some guys have built some frigates and are raiding their neighbors in, in the Adriatic, is there's triage there. You say, well, if they're also protecting us from the Venetians coming back again, or the Spanish or whoever else, they're raiding the shores of Naples and Sicily. We can handle that for now while we try to ensure that the rebels don't burn down Istanbul. So that's where the triage comes from. In time, the Ottomans are able to kind of get their, their, their hands around the situation to a degree. But by then, the situation on the ground has changed dramatically. And that's, that gets, I think, to what you're referring to. So, Josh, chapter two of your book is entitled The Qadi of Malta, signifying, of course, a supposed Ottoman Islamic judge on the island of Malta. This is a paradoxical phrasing since the Ottomans didn't rule the staunchly Catholic island of Malta. So who was this Qadi of Malta? So this was probably one of the more interesting, at least for me, discoveries in the process of researching this book. We know that many Ottoman functionaries were captured in the line of duty and taken to Malta. Um, and while lower status uh, captives were often sent straight to the galleys as oarsmen where uh, there was a constant need to fill the benches, uh, mortality being rather high on a galley, um, those who were more elite and would command a high ransom were sent to the slave's prison. Now, Ottoman judges were appointed from Istanbul uh, and sent to their, their district for terms of one or two years, and then they had to go back to Istanbul again at the end of their term. Uh, what this means is you constantly have Qadis coming in and out of Istanbul, and any who are going by sea are at risk. Towards the end of the 16th century, very significant numbers of Qadis are being picked off by the Corsairs and taken to Malta. But they're not simply valuable captives who will fetch a high ransom, though inevitably they will. These are people who, captured with their writing stands and the reed pens and all the other accoutrements of their office, are actually extremely valuable uh, for the ransom industry. And this is for the very simple reason that for the ransom industry to work, you have to be able to have trust, which is paradoxical when the people who are capturing you are your religious and political enemies. But you need to be able to move massive quantities of money back and forth across the sea. You need to rely on brokers who are going to, if you are a captive, meet up with your family or your friends or deal with representatives of the state to collect that money and somehow transport it and complete this complex transaction in a way that leaves everybody if not satisfied, at least with the captive going home, the captor enriched, and the broker having made a tidy profit. And the only way in which this will work in the Ottoman Mediterranean, ultimately, is if that all those transactions necessary, that includes both the loans, the surety agreements to ensure that somebody pays if things go wrong, uh, the assignations of legal agency, all of that has to be concluded according to Ottoman Islamic law with the requisite documentation. Just so happens then that it's rather convenient that you have a whole bunch of Qadis sitting in the prison in Malta who are prepared to do just that. And so what we encounter is that in addition to there being a designated slave's Qadi on Malta, somebody within the prison community who's nominated to serve as their magistrate, and who fulfills exactly the same rules that he would were he on Naxos or in Izmir or in Galata or Istanbul or anywhere else. In addition to such a figure, is the Qadis of Malta are being asked to draw up these sorts of documents. And they were being referred to explicitly in the courts in the Ottoman core lands, like Galata. When arrangements are contracted there, you must get a hujet, a legal document, from the Qadi of Malta. It says explicitly that. So it's understood that these guys are there and that they have work to do and that they're a part of the process. And we just set aside the fact that 
these are some poor guys who have been captured by Corsairs, had their beards shaved, and they've been tossed in a corner of a dungeon. Set that aside for a moment. They're still Cotties. They still have a job to do. And some of their documents that they've issued survive, and they look just like Hujets issued within the Ottoman domains, except for a couple distinct factors. One is that the paper doesn't look quite as nice. It hasn't had the nice polish that we see from documents drawn up in, in Ottoman domains. And second, whereas most Ottoman documents drawn up by Qadis in the mainland will say, written in protected Izmir, protected Galta, these say they were written in the island of Malta, may God destroy it. And in their signature, they mention, I was the incumbent Qadi of wherever I was supposed to be, and now I'm on the island of Malta. Other than that, there's no difference. Well, we still have a few more questions for Josh, but right now we're going to go to a quick music break, and then we will come back. And so now we're back with Josh White, um, talking about his new book, Piracy and Law in the Ottoman Mediterranean. Um, so, Josh, we talked a little bit about the intricacies of fetvas and Islamic law, and we're starting to, you know, come out of those documents in particular to get more of a general idea of um, what the social, economic, and legal history around these documents looks like in the Ottoman Mediterranean. And so I'm wondering if you can say more um, about what the gendered history of piracy in the early modern Ottoman Mediterranean looks like. Throughout the book, men are the primary actors— from Qadis to naval officers, captives, witnesses in courts, and even the pirates themselves. Women are conveyed not only as victims, but um, as pirate booty to be captured by corsairs and pirates. Were women merely the victims or spoils of war in the Ottoman Mediterranean? That's a great question. And no, women, women certainly are not just victims. While I have not encountered any evidence in this context of women pirates... There are, there are a couple of famous examples from the Caribbean, but I've not encountered any here. Women are deeply involved in, in everything that comes surrounding piracy, that, that women may very well be involved in investing in pirating expeditions. There's no reason to doubt that they did, that they may well have been receivers of goods. There are certainly instances in which women are involved in loaning money to ransom people, including Ottoman princesses. Princesses themselves are involved in loaning money. Royal women more broadly are involved in ransoming captives, not just for financial gain, but for uh, kind of the gain of spiritual capital. We have an example, for example, the Valida Sultan uh, Safia being petitioned by an Ottoman judge on Malta saying that to free a captive is worth more than a soup kitchen or, or a bathhouse. Um, and there's... N- there's nothing worth more than having smart men by your side. Uh, so the gender comes in there too. But we, in, we encounter then, yes, in, in a much broader context. That said, the sources really only allow us to kind of gesture at these things sometimes uh, that uh, narrative sources uh, by Ottomans about piracy are in relatively short supply. 
most Ottoman captives chose not to write about their experience, chose, in fact, to ignore it. And so we have a fair number of people who get in the sobriquet uh, Esiri. But we often know very little about these things. Uh, they tend not to talk about their families when they do. Um, when women were captured, many were not ransomed. Those who were, again, we don't have the kinds of uh, documents on the Ottoman side that we do for the European side, where you get, of course, this broad genre of captivity narratives is captivity narratives written by women or in the voice of women become very popular and become part of the broader, you know, the kind of drumming up of the colonial project uh, that all these white Christian women being held in captivity in North Africa uh, becomes really critical, as Gillian Weiss has argued, for drumming up support for an invasion of Algiers, at which point, of course, there aren't any white Christian women hanging out in the Banos in Algiers. But that's beside the point. They can look to events during the uh, Greek War of Independence as inspiration for that. But there aren't really any comparable documents that I'm aware of on the Ottoman side. Which, of course, I mean, I just want to highlight this really important point that you're making doesn't mean that there weren't Ottoman women who had been um, enslaved both by Ottoman and Catholic corsairs. Um, and so the growth of the captivity right. narrative literature is not, you know, it, that doesn't happen only in Europe because there are no instances of captivity among Ottoman women, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's a very important point, actually. Absolutely. And probably somewhere on the order of 10% of the Muslim captives taken by the corsairs of Malta uh, are women. But these women are not held alongside the men. It's unlike all the male captives who have to be kept together in the slaves' prison, the women are immediately sold, whether they're captured by private corsairs or by the, uh, or by uh, private entrepreneurs. They're immediately sold off, and the ransom rates seem to be much, much lower for them. I have only seen, really, uh, cases where they're ransomed alongside families, so they're captured with their families. In terms of gendered violence, the sources tend not to talk much about that at the initial stage of capture. Now, we, of course, know that women who were captured and sold as slaves were kept and used for sexual service. What this, of course, means, though, is at least at the moment of capture, most pirates and corsairs, if they plan to sell uh, their captives, may not actually want to abuse their captives because they want to be able to sell them and legally, if if they use them for sexual service, that's going to make things complicated. What we then instead encounter much in literature, and this is true, for example, in Mustafa Ali, are references to uh, violence against boys who are sort of a third gender in Ottoman society. So this is a question I actually had, which is that, you know, you, you go into some detail in the legal texts about repercussions for, um, you know, illegally raiding property um, and illegally enslaving Ottoman citizens. But obviously, you know, the phrase rape and pillage, right, comes to our mind when we think about pirates. Were there any legal um, repercussions for Rape? I mean, rape is extraordinarily difficult to prove in Islamic law. So I've seen no evidence of that being the case, at least in the courts. Outside the courts, uh, there are absolute repercussions for those Ottoman pirates who are found to have raided um, Ottoman subjects, and their targets usually are women and children. And mm. it requires a little imagination to know mm. or to, to guess what may be happening to them. Uh, the typical punishments, in addition to death, um, which is always popular, are sen- being sentenced to life uh, on the galleys, which mm. has a certain poetic justice. Yeah, return them to the sea. <laughs> yes, and um, being sentenced to life on the galleys is usually a fairly short term because uh, the mortality rates are rather high. But 
I mean, it's interesting in a way, but not really surprising that the sources will look past what is happening to women, except after the point of sale, which is when then we know all about what's happening. And one of the things we realize very quickly in reading the court records is how rapidly uh, women are being sold and resold. But as long as you're doing this according to the law and well, pirates may not be terribly concerned with the law, at least initially, other than trying to represent those captives as being legally taken. Their owners care. And that means that you can't, there are waiting periods involved and, and, and things like that. And so these crimes are often, at least when it involves Ottoman subjects, discovered pretty quickly, it seems. So this is fascinating, I think, because Taylor, it shows that, you know, this question about what uh, the history of piracy, the social history of piracy can tell us about not just piracy, right? About, in this case, you know, notions about thinking about violence, about thinking about property, um, women as property, gendered, uh, you know, gendered forms of violence, gendered property. Um, so it's really fascinating. It seems to me there's perhaps more writing to be done there when you're, you, when you've recovered from uh, submitting the proofs of the book. So I just wanted to ask a one final question here, which is that we so we have had a previous episode on the podcast where Ali Wick, who's based at the American University of Beirut, um, introduced his his new book about the Ottoman Red Sea. And, and he argues that the Ottomans in the secondary literature, um, starting from the 19th century, have never been associated with the sea. They've been considered land born, you know, desert people, um, and that Ottoman maritimity or Ottoman naval or maritime law has really not been considered. Um, how does that resonate in the early modern period? You know, would, would you say that, that that sort of speaks to the secondary literature from your time? Um, I think up until fairly recently, that was definitely the case, that there's a long tradition of saying, well, the Turks don't know anything about water, so they relied on the Greeks, and that was that. And as far as maritime laws, yes, the assumption for a long time was that the Ottomans had none. In terms of work on the Ottoman experience of piracy in the Ottoman Mediterranean, the, the, the literature uh, was pretty sparse until fairly recently. And so as, as I suggested, much of the focus has been on the Western Mediterranean, on the Corsairs of North Africa. And if the Ottomans were victims of piracy or had any real response to it, that was mostly left to the imagination, except in some scattered articles. A number of scholars like Michael Talbot have been really taking apart these old arguments and have been looking at how the Ottomans understand the sea, understand maritime space, understand their maritime space and represent it to others, that they are familiar with the, the, the arguments um, being developed in Europe, but they have their own answers to them. And so what, maybe in short, to close the episode, does looking at Ottoman piracy or maritime law in the early modern period offer to broader... Um, perhaps Mediterranean or even global stories about um, pirates and maritime law? So it's, it's become, I think, popular in the last decade or two to look at Grotius and Gentili and to think about how really the origins of international law lie in the question of what is legal and, and illegal violence. Where is the line between piracy and privateering? Who has the right to set it? Who has rights to the sea? Is it open? Is it closed? The question of piracy and empire and law, they're all deeply linked. Uh, but it's been a story that is really about Europeans in space. Take Europeans and stick them wherever you want, in the Mediterranean, in the Indian Ocean, wherever, but it's just a European story. I would suggest and argue that looking at what's going on in the Ottoman Mediterranean should remind us that it's not just Europeans dealing with these questions. Um, 
that the Europeans do have interlocutors here. I mean, and it's not just in the Ottoman Mediterranean, but of course in the Indian Ocean and beyond as well. But bringing the Ottomans into the story, I think, introduces us not only to a much broader realm of, of maritime violence, but introduces us to a much broader and deeper history of international law than the kind of in drawing rooms in Northern Europe story that we're familiar with. We get a much kind of messier, grittier, on the ground, back and forth story by looking at what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. And if I may jump in here, because we are coming to a close, you know, there, as you said, there's relatively little historiography on the subjects we're talking about. But indeed, many of the people who are working on these subjects, you mentioned Michael Talbot, our own Michael Talbot, uh, of course, Emra Safa Gurkhan, who we've had on and we will be having on again. Um, these authors uh, can all be found in other interviews on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, as well as the interview with Noor Sobers Khan, which kind of touches on what you're talking about, but looking at uh, slavery and law in uh, early modern Istanbul, and, and many other uh, great episodes that we have linked to this episode on our website. So Josh, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating book, and I know our listeners are going to look forward to uh, checking it out. They can find the link on our website. Susie and Taylor, thank you to you both as well. And uh, shout out to Matt Gazarian, who's in the studio and who's been uh, taking a few photographs uh, that we'll be using to sort of help tell people what we're doing, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, at this uh, podcasting workshop retreat on Burgazara, the Burgaz Island uh, near Istanbul. Yes, and we have a, we also have a cat that has wandered into the studio and has kept us company as a sort of a service animal, <laughs> bringing comfort uh, to this long but very exciting podcast. Uh, that's all for this episode. Thanks to our listeners once again for staying with us to to the end, and join us in another installment of Autumn History Podcast. <laughs>